Hi, welcome to the Midtown Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check out our website and social media. And now, this week's message. All right, well, there is a wisdom in this old lady. As bitter as she might be, she's had some experience and she knows how to talk to to men, right? There's this wisdom she possesses, the way to a man's heart. She knows the way to a man's heart, which is true. It's through the stomach, but there's also (laughs) other ways to a man's heart. She knows it's through timing, knowing the right time, the right approach, the right technique. It's been a minute since she's had to use that gift, but she's going to pass it on tonight. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Ruth chapter 3. If, uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, we're so glad that you're with us. We've been studying the book of Ruth, right? This is our third week in it. We're three chapters into a little four-chapter book, a tiny little one tucked away in there. It's eight books into the Bible, so you may want to use your table of contents on this one. It's real small, real hard to find. If you get to the first and second anythings, you've gone too far. You're going to want to go back. Uh, Ruth, eight books in. If you have a Bible that starts with the book of Matthew or any of the guy's names, you're in the wrong one. So uh, you can just listen in to catch you up. We're in this book, um, this amazing little work of literature from history, and we're three chapters in. If you weren't here the last two weeks, we're studying a young lady's story named Ruth. We find ourselves in the living room of a woman named Naomi to start the story around 1300 BC. We find ourselves in a place and time when there's a famine in the land of Israel in a town called Bethlehem, a town whose name means house of bread, only there's no bread in Bethlehem because of the famine. That is going on. And we're in the living room of a lady named Naomi. She's sitting at the dinner table. And her husband bursts into the scene. And he goes, honey, do you trust me? And she goes, what is this about? And he goes, I just need to know, do you trust me? She goes, I wouldn't have married you if I don't trust you. And he goes, okay, good. We're packing it all up. And we're going back to Moab. We're moving from Bethlehem. We can't survive here. We can't make it with this famine. There's nothing to eat. We're losing everything, and I can't stand to lose you. So we're going back to Moab. Pack it all up. We leave tomorrow, and the soundtrack changes because Moab is the exact spot they're not supposed to go to. This is a place where God expressly commanded them, don't go to Moab. We learn in this, in this book, right, that Moab comes from a drunken, incestual relationship where two daughters on the run decide in the book of Genesis that they're probably not going to have children. They're not going to meet a man while they're on the run. They're hiding in a cave with their father. And because they're so convinced that they're not going to have children, they decide there's only one thing that we can do. And so they get their dad's their dad sloppy drunk in this cave. You guys can read this story for yourselves. They get him sloppy drunk in this cave, and they each take turns sleeping with him at night. That's how the clan of Moab starts. It's gruesome stuff, gnarly stuff, and it gets worse. And God goes, don't have anything to do with those people. Why? Because you almost want to compare Moab to Vegas, right? Because of that tagline, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But it's worse than that. In Moab, what happens in Moab doesn't stay in Moab. Like they're perfectly fine trying to spread this wickedness, this iniquity 
anywhere. And so that's why God goes, don't have anything to do with the Moabites. Don't have anything to do with Moab. It's only 50 miles away. So when Elimelech walks into the living room and says, we're going to Moab, everything changes. That's a heavy thing to say that you're going to do. And in addition to all of that, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Moab's only 50 miles away. The question has to be asked, why is there bread in Moab and not in the house of bread? What is going on in Bethlehem that there's a famine in Bethlehem? But because his family's on the line, Elimelech does what's, a, what's right according to his own mind, is what we read in Scripture. So Elimelech comes in and says, now Naomi, trust me, it's time to go. And they pack everything into a wagon so they can go sojourn, is the word that is used in Ruth chapter 1, so they can go sojourn in Moab. But then we find out that 10 years later, they're still there. This has become a life for them. It's not a vacation anymore. In fact, what else happens is Elimelech dies. And now Naomi has to raise her boys in Moab by herself. And when they come of age, they marry Moabite women. So they're not just vacationing in Moab anymore. They're pretty committed to Moab. They live in Moab. This thing that started out being just a step, just a break, just a pause, ends up being their lifestyle. And things get worse when both those boys die. And that's where Ruth opens up, the book of Ruth. We see these three women, hazy figures on the screen, standing above three graves as they're burying all of their men. And then Naomi decides, 10 years later, chapter 1 of Ruth, we got to go back to Bethlehem. We got to go back to the land of God, right? We got to get out of this place. There's nothing left for me here. Nothing is going to go right as long as I stay in Moab. And though she's mad at God, she begins going back to Bethlehem. And as she's moving with her daughters-in-law, the thought strikes her on the way. Hold on. Why am I bringing these girls with me? There's nothing for them in Bethlehem. They're Moabites. No one's going to marry them. See, in that culture, women's status, the only thing that got them status was their marriages or what children that they had. And these ladies were widows, and they had no children. And so she's like, to go back to Bethlehem in hopes of finding a man, well, you're just not going to find one. And so she pulls the e-brake on the chariot, and she goes, girls, listen, I love you. Go back to Moab. You got, there's nothing for you in Bethlehem. And both the girls start crying because they love Naomi. You guys remember all of this? And Orpah goes, boy, um, I love you, Naomi. I'm going to stick with you. And Naomi says, I love you too. You got to go back. And so Orpah leaves and goes back to Moab. And then Naomi turns and looks at her other daughter-in-law named Ruth. And she says, hon, you got to get out of here. And Ruth says, I'm not going anywhere. Wherever you go, I go. Your God will be my God. Wherever they bury you, they're going to have to bury me too. And may worse happen to me if, I, if anything but death separates us. And Naomi goes, oh, I'm not shaking her loose. So they get back in the chariot and they start back to Bethlehem. And as they're approaching Bethlehem, this is so interesting. As they're approaching Bethlehem, the townspeople from Bethlehem come out to see. There, there's this person returning, rolling up into town, and they recognize her, and they go, is this Naomi, the person who left with so much? She had a husband. She had sons, which were the things you wanted in that culture. Is this still her? And Naomi goes, don't call me Naomi anymore. Yes, it's me, but don't call me that. That means pleasant. I need you to call me something new, bitter. 
bitter old woman is my new name. And sure, it's concerning when she says it at the dinner table, but when she says it to strangers, you're like, mom's mad. And so they come back into the city and they set up camp there. And we find that they're, they're, things aren't going well for Ruth and Naomi. They wake up in the morning and they're pretty hungry. And Ruth, one morning, we talked last week, she decides, you know what, I'm going to go glean in a field. Gleaning in fields is um, part of God's Old Testament law, something that he instructed his people to do. When they came into the promised land, he told them, like, when you're harvesting food, um, I want you to leave some behind for the fatherless, the alien, and the widow, so that when they come into a field, they'll have enough to survive off of, right? And so Ruth decides, I've got to go do that. And the Bible says, and this is all just to recap, the Bible says she wanders into the field of a man called Boaz, right? Just so happens to be her family's kinsman redeemer. We'll get into that in just a second. And Boaz is the guy on the white horse who rides down from the castle on a hill, and he goes, who's this Satan worshiper in my field? Because Moabites worship Satan, like they were demonic, uh, a demonic clan, right? He goes, who's a Satan worshiper in my field? He's noticing this. And so he goes over to the foreman and he elbows him and he goes, hey, who's the foreigner? And the guy goes, this is, this is Ruth. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard about her. She's been trending on Twitter, right? Everybody's going, who is this Moabite? This Satan worshiper who came back with Naomi from Moab. She's in Bethlehem. And he goes, this is her. She's in my field. I got to know more. And so the Bible says he gets down off his horse and he heads over to her. And all of us lean in because we're like, this is the romance story. And he says, hey, hon, I've noticed the way you've worked. I've noticed your work ethic. I've noticed your character. I've heard about your loyalty and your commitment to Naomi. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to set you up. I'm going to make sure whatever you have, you get. Whatever you need will be provided for you. And she goes, why are you showing me this kindness? And he goes, because uh, I've heard about you. And that's where we left it last week. We've watched for two chapters how they dined together, how he would send her home with extra grain. But then for seven weeks, nothing. For se ladies, for seven weeks, no, not a phone call, not a text message, not an email, not a friend request, not a follow, nothing. It's just been frozen. But the relationship is about to get defined here because Ruth has had it. Verse 1 of chapter 3, the narrator says, one day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you. we got to define this relationship. Where you will be provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. He's our family's kinsman, redeemer. We talked about this last week, right? We kind of touched on it in verse 20 of chapter 2. We find out that Boaz is the family's kinsman, redeemer, which raises a whole other set of questions, right? You go, what is a kinsman redeemer? I'm so glad that you asked. In the Old Testament law, when God was setting up this new society, right? When he's setting up this new promised land, he wanted these ex-slaves and ex-brick makers to understand, I brought you out of Egypt. I'm putting you in a new place. I'm going to be your king. Things are different here. I'm your king. Everybody else has a king, not you. I'm your king. This land, not yours. It's mine. It belongs to me, but you can steward it. And so what they would do is they would divvy up the land to different clans, different families, different people. They were to steward 
this land. So different families owned land. Now, if a family fell on hard times, if a family went through a starvation or loss or death, they could sell off their land and in the short term get some money for it. But just think about how horrible of a circumstance that would be to forfeit your family's land, your family's plot of land for an answer, for a financial gain in the short term that didn't really translate into anything in the long term. Now, every 50 years or so, they would give everybody back the land that they started out with. It was called a jubilee year, right? This is this thing that was built into the whole thing. Um, but think about, again, how tragic it would be for your family to get into such a situation that you had to sell off your land to make ends meet in the short term. So the Lord goes, okay, there's going to be a stipulation in there. Like if somebody has to sell off their land or something like that has to happen, somebody dies, he knew things like this could happen. And so his stipulation was like the next of kin in the family, somebody called a kinsman redeemer, could go and buy back, redeem, buy back that land. And you, the wife or the daughter, the, the person connected to the one who died, you would become that person's property and so would that field, but it would go back into your family's name. Does that make sense? So that's what Boaz is in this story. It seems that when Elimelech left, he probably cashed in his land. He probably got the money for it. Goes off, comes back, and Naomi is like just waiting for somebody to kind of to purchase her back. So along with the land, you become that person's possessions as a wife or as a mom. That's all connected to this kinsman redeemer idea. And we find out that Boaz is Naomi and Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Kinsman meaning next of kin. Redeemer meaning the person who can buy back on that family's account. So Naomi wakes up one morning after seven weeks of silence from Boaz. It is deafening. And Naomi goes, hey, we got to define the relationship. We got to figure out where things are going here, right? We got to get to the bottom of this. I got to get you connected to this Boaz guy. So here's what we're going to do. Verse two, tonight, I love the wisdom of Naomi here. He will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lays down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. We read this and we're like, okay, what? Like, what? what is it? I don't, this is a strange set of instructions. But what we find, just to bring it into our terms, Ruth wakes up. She's like, mom, it's been seven weeks. He hasn't called. He hasn't texted. There's been nothing, no friend request, no follow. I don't understand. He's single. He's rich. Yeah, he's a little bit older, but he's rich. Like, I can deal with that. And he hasn't reached out. And this is where the wisdom of mother-in-law says, "Hun, I think it's time for you to step up and show your game. He's going to be out celebrating tonight, right? It's the end of the harvest season. He's going to be out with the guys. They're going to be having a great celebration. They're going to go to sleep on the threshing floor. They're going to use their sleeping bags, right? And that's when you go in, in the middle of that party. But timing is everything, daughter. It's guys' night, right? They're going to be doing, they're going to be barbecuing, they're going to be grilling out, they're going to throw back a few drinks, they're going to be playing some cards, shooting some pool. You don't want to storm up in there and go, hey, it's been seven weeks, why haven't you called? We got to define this relationship. You're going to blow it. You're going to embarrass him in front of all the guys. Give him some time. Give him guy time. But when he's done with the guy time, then he'll be receptive. Ladies, it's biblical. (laughs) 
So we see it right in here. Now, in your relationship, you have to work out how much guy time and how much lady time. But the wisdom of a sharp, shrewd mother-in-law says timing is everything. Don't interrupt guy time. Guy time's important. For whatever reason, in his masculinity, in that moment, he's going to feel really good. He's going to find his value. But when he's sleeping, after guy time is over, sneak in, pull the blanket off of his feet. His feet will get cold. He'll wake up. Then ask him to propose to you. That's what she's saying here. This is the first time in history that a woman was hoping a guy would get cold feet, right? <laughs> Verse 5, Ruth goes, I'll do whatever you say. Like, which is, which is, I mean, it's beautiful, but it's also like, this doesn't matter. Okay. Because we're told in the previous chapter, she's not real familiar with the customs of Bethlehem. You know, the guys are like, listen, we don't want to embarrass her. She might be unfamiliar, right? And so I think Ruth is kind of like, this is the weirdest. You've had some weird ones. This is the weirdest custom I've heard of so far. We're going to pull it. Okay, I'm going to sneak in there. I'm going to dress now. Whatever. So she went in, verse 6, to the threshing floor. (coughs) She did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and shooting pool and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quickly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. I'll tell you what. Ruth. He turned. He turned, and he goes, there's a woman lying at my feet. And so he shouts down, who are you? I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my family's kinsman redeemer. I love that. She, she goes, uh, she sneaks in. She pulls the blanket off of his feet, just like Naomi says. He wakes up. He's like, oh, who's down there? It's Ruth. Will you propose to me? And he goes, uh, well, verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Pause. I think we know why he's single. I think that Boaz, I could be reading too much into this, but I think that insecurity of a lady like you, why would you be interested in me? Why aren't you chasing the younger men? I don't think he's very attractive. And I think he knows that. I think he's shocked at her interest in him. He goes, man, you're not chasing the younger men, whether rich or poor. You're not chasing them. You're chasing me. And now my daughter, verse 11, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble care. I love, he's like, you got a reputation. You got dignity. You've got, your reputation is impeccable. So let's do this, but let's do it the right way. See, Boaz knows that there's somebody ahead of him in line. In terms of the kinsman redeemer idea, right? He is the person who can buy back, but, but he's also not the closest next of kin. There's one person who's closer. So he's in second. Someone else has dibs. And so that's what he says in verse 12. Although it's true that I'm the kinsman redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your kinsman redeemer, then good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So lie here until morning. I love that what he says is let's do this the right way. But then he breaks our hearts. See, in this culture, there's someone else, Boaz says, who has first claim to you, and it's not me. Go back in the darkness. Don't let anyone know you came out to a guy's room at night. You'll get a bad reputation on that one. And he's so careful, right, 
to, she leaves with hope, but she also leaves with fear, I would think, that there's somebody else that can marry me. So verse 14, she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. I love too, he's protecting here her reputation. Her character is above reproach. Her reputation is above reproach. And he's making sure nothing bad can be said about her. And men, just as an aside, may we, may we be people who protect our ladies in this way? who protect people from gossip, from rumors, from innuendo. Can we live above reproach the way Boaz does? He also says, verse 15, bring me the shawl you're wearing, hold it out. And when she did, he poured six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, who's waiting back home, she goes, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me six measures of barley saying, don't go back empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. It's a lot. And then we're into chapter four. Meanwhile, I love this, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there just as the guardian redeemer, the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, sit down. And he went over and sat down. So we learn in chapter one, real quick, that the town gate, the city gate, is where all the official business happens, right? It's where the court is. It's where the police, I mean, it's all the stuff, right? This is an official place. So they go over there, and where we find him, Boaz, in chapter 4, is he's at the town gate pacing nervously. He's got a ring burning a hole in his pocket, and he's going, oh, I can't believe this younger girl is interested in me. I never thought I'd get married. I never thought there'd be a woman of character who was interested in me. I'm kind of bad looking, and here she is, and we have our opportunity. He's nervous, right? And then the kinsman redeemer, the one who's next in line, he walks in. Boaz knows it's him. He's second in line. He sees the kinsman redeemer walk in. He takes, verse 2, 10 of the elders of the town, and he goes, sit here. Like, he gets the people who can weigh in on this thing. He's like, sit right here. I got something I got to arrange. I got to talk to you about this. I'm so excited. But he doesn't show his hand all the way. We're going to see the shrewdness of a brilliant businessman. He says, verse 3, to the guardian redeemer, the kinsman, Naomi, who's come back from Moab. You guys remember Naomi, right? She came back. Um, her husband sold his, all that stuff. She is selling the piece of land that belonged to Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention. So he's talking to the kinsman redeemer in the presence of the 10 elders. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention to suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to it except you and I am the next in line. I, this is brilliant. Boaz makes this whole thing about property. He doesn't make it about Naomi. He doesn't make it about Ruth. He makes it about property. See, when Elimelech left, this property, you know, Naomi has, she can sell it off, and land is hard to come by because it's all been divvied up. So the guy who's next in line has first dibs, first chance to buy this property. He makes this entire exchange about property. He doesn't say it's about Naomi, it's about Ruth, and it's, it's so brilliant the way he does it. Now, the scripture doesn't say it, but I'm going to go out on a limb here. And, and, and I'm going to say, I think that Ruth and Naomi were there too, right? Because they're attached to this property. If the guy buys the property, he also gets Ruth and Naomi. That's how this works in this culture. And my hunch is, if you're the thing being auctioned off, 
You're going to show up at the auction. I think they're sitting there, and for the first time, they're looking. They see this kinsman redeemer walk in, the one who's ahead of Boaz and Lion, and they're like, oh, no. I bet Ruth is like, please don't be the guy. Please don't be the guy. He's so ugly. Like, I think he's uglier than Boaz. I was going to describe a guy that's ugly, and then I'm like, in a room this size, it's going to be one of us, fellas. So, um, <laughs> Probably 5'10", 190, right? Patchy beard, maybe Italian. Uh, so <clears throat> the first time in the story, I think Naomi's holding her breath. Ruth is standing there, and for the first time, she looks at the gentleman that's first in line, and she's thinking, please don't be him. Please don't be him. And the guy who's hearing this, Boaz goes, you can buy the land. And he goes, I can get land? And you want it? Yeah. I'll, verse 5, I will redeem it. Sight unseen, right? He hasn't even seen the land. He just knows, okay, there's land available. There's not a lot of land available. There's land available. Boaz wants it. I'm going to take it. I will redeem it. And the crushing blow comes. Three chapters of romance between Boaz and Ruth comes to an end. Don't keep reading. Look up here. Three chapters of romance comes to a close. Ruth is standing there with Naomi, and she probably falls into her mother's garments, right? And she goes, oh, my goodness, I just lost Boaz. But watch the incredible shrewdness of Boaz. It's brilliant. He goes, okay, verse 5. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you should also know that you'll require Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. The guy goes, I'll take the land. Boaz goes, okay, you also get a new mother-in-law. By the Oh, and by the way, she calls herself bitter old woman now. You guys are going to have a blast, right? Oh, and along with bitter old woman comes a Satan worshiper. You guys, this is going to be great. I should just tell you, right? See, biblically, according to Leviticus 25, if he buys the land, he gets the family. And so the guy has got to be going, no, 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 I just want the land. And Boaz is like, yeah, the property can be yours, but, but you're going to take the Satan worshiper and the bitter old woman as a mother-in-law. This is going to be a great, great scenario for you. <laughs> can you imagine being that guy? I love the way Boaz said, it's shrewd. He's like, door number one, great property. Palm trees, fertile soil, water, you don't have to do anything. The guy's like, I'll take it. What's behind door number two? Bitter old woman's your new mother-in-law. It's like, oh, no. What about three? Satan worshiper you'll be married to. And your job, biblically, is to make her have babies, and then you got to cut them into your will, too, right? They have full access to your ATM, your banking, your cell phone plan. Like, this is all. And he's like, I don't think my kids are going to. He goes, I can't do it. I love that in this story, this story has always been about doing the right things the right way. If you, want, if you take notes, you jot that down in your margin. God uses people doing the right things the right way. This story has always been about that. I love that Boaz has the presence of mind to do this the right way. In the middle of the night when he's woken up and he sees a lady laying down there, guys, I don't have time to chase this one, but in that culture, he could have slept with her right then and there. And that would have legally made a marriage by their worldview. And he, he has the presence of mind to go, no, if we're going to do this, we're going about it the right way. I love this story is about God using people doing the right things the right way. And I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I know in my life, when I do the right things the right way, there's a risk factor often involved, huh? Like in this story, it's possible 
that the next of kin, the guy first in line, he could have gotten Ruth. Boaz doesn't know how this story is going to turn out. But he decides, you know what, I'm going to do it right. And I'm going to trust God with that. I'm going to do it the right way. Because God won't bless me doing something the wrong way. I'm going to do it the right way. And in my experience, there has always been risk involved. There's always been risk involved in trusting God and doing things the right way. Because you don't know how. And I can mitigate risk, right? In my own life, I can kind of nav- I can manipulate things. I don't do it the right way. I can manipulate it this way to keep the risk out of it so to make sure that I get what I want. And Boaz doesn't do any of that. He's sure he's a shrewd businessman, but he still does it the right way. And he makes this offer to the guy. He goes, listen, get the land, get a bitter old woman and a Satan worshiper, deal or no deal. And I love the response. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, well, then I can't redeem it. Because I might endanger my own estate. I looked up in the Hebrew, the, the phrase, I might endanger my own estate, means my wife doesn't want to share a bed with a Satan worshiper <laughs> or have a mother-in-law who calls herself bitter living with us. And I love the way that this turns. Verse 7, now in earlier times in Israel for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, this is kind of parenthetical, one party would take off his sandal and give it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Don't you love that? There's no need for a notary. Imagine we could do that today, just be like, here you go. You know, like we just take off a a shoe. I've done a bunch of research. I'm like, why is this the case? I can't figure it out other than if you got a guy's shoe, chances are he's in on the deal, right? He's like, you know, if you've got his shoe or you ran him over and took his shoes. Like it's one or the other. So verse 8, Boaz jumps on this opportunity. So the kinsman redeemer says to Boaz, buy it yourself, and removes his sandal. And no sooner than this opportunity comes along does Boaz jump up and announce, verse 9, to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Gosh, I love the way this man sees scripture. I love his commitment to the Bible. See, in the law, this Old Testament, all of these customs and traditions that we've been talking about, when when Boaz gets Ruth, his job now is to provide her a child and then I'm sorry, um, her husband's last name goes on that. Not Boaz's, but the new husband, right? And Boaz gets that, and he goes, yeah, he's going to take your last name, not mine, because I'm providing you a lineage. I'm providing you a family. Boaz constantly does things the right way. And so along the way, as we've been walking through this, ladies, I've been kind of pointing out some stuff to you relationally, just relational, (coughs) sorry, advice. Um, Just some things that I see in this story. And if you're in the room, you're single, you're dating, I just want to encourage you. Don't look for a guy that brings a Bible to church. Look for a guy, I mean, because that's easy. We said in week one, don't look for a Christian guy. Because that's easy. Titles are easy. Look for a guy whose life models being a Jesus follower. Who does the stuff. Even when it's hard. Even when there's risk involved. 
who's following God. Don't look for a guy who brings a Bible to church. Look for a guy who's got a Bible that's falling apart because he's looking for how do I do this God's way? How do I do? That's what we see in Boaz. He doesn't miss a thing. He's been studying. How do I do this God's way? And through that, people see God's story in his story. Verse 11, the elders and the people at the gate all said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. I love that. These foremothers of the Jewish faith who together built up the family of Israel. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. What a day. Married and pregnant on the same night. That's crazy. What the Lord's done in this story. You read this and you go, are you kidding me? This is an amazing, what a miracle. Guys, the story starts out with Naomi walking back to Bethlehem going, there's no hope. There's no hope. There's no hope. I believe in God. He just hates me. He's got it out for me. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, right, the Lord goes, you forgot about Boaz. And I'm going to tell, I'm going to work this amazing miracle into your life through a Satan worshiper and through a bitter old woman. I'm going to tell a better story. And that story is going to bring glory to me. Right? Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, I love this. Guys, I think, I'm not in charge of naming the Bible, but if I was in charge of naming books of the Bible, I would call this book Naomi, not Ruth. Okay, look at, because, I mean, watch. The women said to Naomi, not Ruth, the women said, so the baby's been born. The women say to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you. Okay, someone needs to hear that today because you're struggling. You think God's left you. You think he's turned his back on you. You think he's got it. You're kind of like Naomi. You're like, no, 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 he's there. He just hates me. He's dealt me a bad hand. He's got it out for me, right? The women say to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not, guys, God has not left you. Though he may be silent, he is not absent. He is working, we'll see in a moment, behind the scenes, orchestrating, doing everything necessary to get to you, telling your story. Watch what happens here. They go, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. We'll talk more about that next week. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, the Satan worshiper, your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. You're like, why not Ruth? She's probably recovering from giving birth. Naomi takes the child in her arms and cared for him. The women women living there said, Naomi has a son. And here's my favorite part. They named him Obed. Pause. They named him Obed. Ruth didn't name him. Naomi did. The people who have witnessed this miracle name the child. They can go, you can call him whatever you want. We're calling him Obed, which means servant of God. Servant of God. We've seen the way God, we've seen the miracle he's worked in your life. We saw you when you came back. You had no husbands. There was all this death in your rear view. Naomi, remember, you were bitter. 
You were telling everybody, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter old woman, right? You were a Satan where we saw what God did when you just trusted him enough to do what he says. Ruth, you gave birth to a son. Naomi, you got to hold the son. We're naming this son servant of God. Man, this story brings God glory. They go, we're going to name him for you. We've seen the miracle in your life. You guys, some of you just need that encouragement today. Your story's not over. You might be in a chapter one. You think all hope is lost. God's got it out for you. You have no idea what chapter two has for you. Just keep doing the right thing. What I love in this story is God uses people doing the right things the right way. God uses people doing the right things the right way. And I think what's still so important here is that the way God worked back then is the way he works now. That's why this story is in here. The way We look at these stories and we go, oh, isn't that cool that God worked that way back then? And it's like, no, 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 no. He's the same yesterday, today. The way he worked back then is the way he works now. The way he worked is the way he works. Guys, when we follow God, when we do the right things the right way, I think, gosh, you have no idea what hangs in the balance. And when you see him work. And yeah, there's a risk factor involved. Some of you are up against that risk right now. You see the gap between where you are and where you need to be, and you're tempted not to trust God, but to manipulate, to cheat. Like if I, okay, if I can mitigate the risk in this and God is going, hey, would you just trust me? Would you just trust me? Yes, there's risk involved, but you have no idea the miracle that I can do with this. And the way God worked with people then the way God worked with Ruth in this story, the way he worked through Naomi, the way he worked through Boaz, that's the same way he works with people now. He's looking for people who trust him enough to do what he says, who do the right things the right way. So in the few minutes I have remaining, I want to ask how. How does this hand of God work? And I kind of, as I was praying about it this week, I, I kind of identified, I think God's hand works in our lives in two ways. One, God works through a visible hand that we call miracles. A visible hand that we call miracles. A miraculous thing happening. We see it right in front of us. Like the natural and the supernatural clash, the supernatural enters the natural. We see miracles occur, and I believe in miracles. But there's a second way that I think he works, and that's through providence. Providence is sort of the invisible way that he works through your daily interactions, through your choices, through your daily lives, daily living, right? One hand of God is visible. Miracles, that's visible. But the other one is invisible. It's what's going on in the rear view. It's kind of like what we said last week. Miracles, you can see on the windshield. You can see it right in front of you. Most times, in my experience, providence, you can only see in the rear view. You can see what he was aligning behind you, what he was doing, how he was working. You can see it in this story. You start with chapter, you start with Obed, this baby in Naomi's arms, and you're like, the townspeople, they're like, shut up. That's where all that was headed, right? In chapter one, Elimelech left, and, and at the end of chapter one, you came back, but you were super mad and salty and bitter, right? And then you had this Satan worshiper with you, and she started 
harvesting in some guy's field, and that was weird. And then he approached her, and yeah, there was an Asian. And then you went down to his sleeping bag, right, and uncovered his feet. Like, that's weird, right? And then he had to go to the town's gate and all this stuff. And now you're married. And he t- it was your kinsman redeemer, and God gave you a baby through this story? Are you kidding me? You see all of that only looking behind. Ruth could have never known that going forward. If you fast forward, or rewind, depending on how you look at it, if you go back to that moment that she's standing there with Naomi and Orpah, right? She had no idea that by saying yes to Naomi, that God was going to give her a new family and a son and a miracle. She had no idea. You can't see it going forward. You can only see it in reverse. The question is, Do you trust him enough to do what he says? Do you trust him enough? Guys, faith in the Bible, faith in the Bible is trusting God enough to do what he says. If we were to boil down or strip down the definition of faith in the Bible to just one simple phrase, that's the one that I see, is trusting God enough to do what he says. And and the emphasis sometimes is on the word trust, Most times for me, it's on the word enough. Most times for me, it's a struggle. Just trying to get past that line. I just need to trust you enough. There's not a lot, but there's enough. There's a little bit. I'm just going to give you a little. Like we see that in this story, right? Ruth and Orpah are both standing there in chapter one with Naomi. And both want to go with Naomi. That's how the story starts. They're both crying. Ruth says, go back to Moab, and both of them say, no way, we're not leaving you. They both have some trust in Naomi. You see that? But when push comes to shove, Orpah doesn't have enough. She can't come across that line. She's close to it, but she can't get across it. And so she goes back, and guys, we never hear of her again. We ne- nothing else in her story happened, that we know of, but Ruth Who knows how much? Tiptoes across that line, gets just past it, and that's all God needs. Trust me enough. Watch what I can do. Watch what I can do. The rest of the story happens because Ruth trusted God enough. She trusted him enough in chapter one. She trusted him enough in chapter two, and she gets up and she goes, I'm going to go glean. I don't know where I'm going to go. It's risky out there, but we're starving. I prayed, but I'm not going to sit and wait and hide behind my prayers. I got to go do something. And God goes, oh, I can direct a moving car, right? You trusted me enough, I'm going to direct you right into the field. I love what chapter 2 says. It just so happens to be Boaz's. Just so happens or intentional. In every step of the way, they, Boaz trusts God enough. I got to do this right. I got to do this right. I got to bring her to the guy who's ahead of me in line. He trusts him, he trusts God enough, and God goes, oh, I can use that. I can, and the rest of this story, we have a child that is born <laughs> named Obed, servant of God. Because Ruth, because Naomi, because Boaz trusted God enough. So, we said a couple of weeks ago, we read these stories because they read us. We read these stories, we find ourselves in these characters. My question today is, who are you? Or 
Maybe more importantly, where are you? Where are you? Are you up against something? Guys, the way God worked back then is the way he works now. The way he worked with people back then is the way he works now. And he's looking for people who trust him enough to do the right thing the right way. And you might be in a position where you're tempted to kind of to fill that gap with your own devices, with your own manipulation, with your own cheating. And I would ask, just trust him enough. You know what I would also say, and kind of looking forward to talking more about this next week. This story, like we, I could tell you all the promises of God and they're important and they're vast and they're endless, but they're meaningless if you don't have a relationship with him. The story of Ruth is our story. There's a kinsman redeemer in this story who buys back something that had been lost. The story of the Bible, the Bible's a big book, but it's really only three acts long. Act one, God creates. The first two chapters of Genesis, plants and animals and people that he made to live in relationship with him. But we don't get to have that. Why? Because of what happened in Act 2 in Genesis 3. Sin entered the picture. And God had to remove himself from the presence of sin. He can't be in its presence. But even there in Act 2, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises, he prophesies to Adam and Eve. He goes, I'm going to send someone who's going to put an end to this distance. I'm going to send someone who's going to redeem and buy back that which has been lost. And the rest of the Bible is just everything God did to get to you. Just him returning over and over and over to that promise. I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send someone. And then thousands of years later, in a faint wooden manger, we hear a cry ring out from a place called Bethlehem. You know, this story is a foreshadowing of everything God would do to get to you. And, and then that baby would become a man. And that man would tell us everything we needed to know about God. That man would say that he was God. And he'd go to a cross and they'd nail him up there and he'd say that he took on all those sins that separated us. He wore all those on himself. So God could cancel that debt. And that Friday when Jesus died on the cross, he was writing a check that would buy our freedom. The Bible says Sunday morning when that grave was empty, that resurrection proved that the check cleared. And God goes, that's what I'm offering you if you would trust me enough. Trust me enough to do what I say. Some of you guys have been weighing out for a long time. I wasn't planning on. I think there's folks in the room. You've been weighing out for a long time, whether you trust them enough. I think right now your heart's pounding. I feel like you're going to throw up. 
think today, I mean, it's just, it's just an opportunity. Is it the day that you come across that line? That you surrender? You've been trusting him. I mean, you're here, right? But you've been kind of looking on. Just toying with it. Unsure. It occurs to me that in these few minutes that we have between now and when we close might be the quietest few minutes of our week. Remember a couple of years ago I gave a sermon somewhere and uh, we got to the end of it and I kind of got right up to the whole like is Jesus calling you and then, and then just kind of closed in prayer and we left and someone found me later and was like, how could you do that? I said, how could I do what? How could you get them right up to the line and then not tell them how to come across the line? Someone might not be in heaven now because you didn't help them cross the line. And I'm like, oh, that's a weak faith. <laughs> like if that's all that was standing in the way was me making the presentation, then think God's handcuffed by that and ever since like whenever I get to this part I'm like I'm real scared because I'm like I don't I don't know how to close the deal I don't think that's my job I think that's between the Holy Spirit and you there's no magic set of words in scripture there's nowhere in there where it says all right you pray it's between God and you and so the quiet in the quietness of this space in the quietness of this room, what I want to give you is a few minutes before the noise starts up again for God to meet with you. And then we'll all sing together. And if God's calling you to something, some step, whatever it is, take care of it. Like, we're not going anywhere. That's between you and him. I'm going to leave it open, but I'm going to hope that in this space that he will move into, like he'll, he'll connect with you and tell you what, what you're to do, what your next step is. So Holy Spirit, would you fall on this room? Only you know what we need. So I'm going to pray for each individual heart. that in the quiet you'll speak. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information on who we are, check out our website, midtownvineyardchurch.com. We'd love to hear from you. Make sure you leave us a review or drop us a comment. Until next time, have a great day.